ED equals ED equals ED. Erectile dysfunction equals endothelial dysfunction equals early death. So I try to tie it all together. Low T is a bigger deal than I think we realize it. And granted, I'm only talking about men here, but the impact that this has is staggering. And so I have been trying to educate the local endocrine system providers with the data out of Europe on long-term testosterone replacement in type 2 diabetics with low T and ED. What we're seeing is, as you replace T in these men, not only are you seeing improvements in all their markers of insulin resistance and sensitivity, you're curing a higher percentage of type 2 diabetics. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Casey Means, co-founder and chief medical officer of Levels. I am so excited to introduce you all to Dr. Meryl Matchkey. We are going to be talking about the incredibly strong link between metabolic health and sexual function that is largely under-recognized and barely makes it into the clinical practice conversation. Dr. Meryl Matchkey is a urologist. He has over 25 years of experience in urology and specializes in male reproductive medicine and surgery. He's leading the development of the men's health program at Advocate Aurora Health, a large Midwestern healthcare system. He's worked across several clinical practice models and socioeconomic environments and is passionate about designing a real path towards health for both men and women. He's also a Levels Beta member. He's introduced many of his patients to Levels, and he is just such a valued member of our Levels community. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Matchkey. So I can't wait to dive into topics of men's health, metabolic dysfunction, consumerism in healthcare, and so much more. Dr. Matchkey, welcome to A Whole New Level. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be here with like minds and people who have the same interest. <laughs> yes. Let's start with hearing a little bit more about your personal journey as a clinician. You mentioned that your mission is to be part of a new path in healthcare, a new delivery system of health. How did you come to this mission and how has your thinking as a clinician evolved over the years? Yeah, and I'll try to keep this brief because I like to talk, but uh, <laughs> I have, I am a urologist, but I specialize in what's called andrology. And so we are, we're the urologists that focus on sexual dysfunction, infertility, hormone disorders, and the like. So I have kind of grown my practice over time from a general urology practice, and then I, I grew my subspecialty market. And as I was doing that, you just start to get exposed to the commonalities of, of men with ED, men with infertility, hormone disorders. And it, you start to immerse yourself, if you're passionate about it, into you know what's the common link here. And over time, I really enjoyed the first five years of my practice in general. I started to recognize this, the middle five years of my practice uh, in, a, in a kind of a generalized large group practice uh, environment. Uh, you know, it was okay. You're kind of hitting your stride. And in the last five years of this first 15-year period of my career, I really started to burn out because you start to lose that interest in those 
kind of those those driving factors. And I just became that robot, that robot clinician where you're just pumping people in and pumping people out. I finally hit a part where I didn't feel like I was giving a good product anymore uh, to my patients. I was myself changing for my family and I didn't like it. And I got to a point where I said, this isn't for me anymore. Uh, there were a couple of vignettes, little things that happened in my practice. I was constantly rated amongst a very large urology practice of about 60 or 70 providers. We were the third largest practice in the country at that time. I was constantly rated in the top by the physicians or by the patients. Um, and then one day, a person in my practice, one of my other partners said, you know what, you are running behind and you're running behind enough that I think maybe if we're more than 15 minutes behind, we should offer the patient like a $10 gift card or something to Starbucks. And I, that was, that was a breaking point for me because I said, I'm giving a product they want and they're telling us this. Our end user is telling us I'm doing a good job and I'm going to pay them for that. You know, I said, I have more self-respect for that. So I, I actually took a turn. I took a turn, left the, the kind of the mainstream side of medicine, crossed the fence over to what I call the well side of medicine. And I joined a wellness uh, and prevention uh, concierge medical practice for a year. And it reinvigorated my interest once again in these commonality pathways or the common pathways that were going to lead to endothelial dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, infertility, and some hormone disorders. It just kind of gelled again for me, that, that initial passion for medicine and what led me to male reproductive medicine and surgery in the first place. And so I loved what I was doing. It was down in the south of the country, in the Carolinas. I had an opportunity to come back and join a very large health system and be their main andrologist, their, their guy who's you know got some male infertility background. And I loved what I was doing, but I said, I need to see if I can do this at a bigger scale because we were only getting that top level consumer, the executive type, the optimal health driver, which is great. And we were seeing amazing results. You know, you start just applying changes in behavior and lifestyle. You're moving to the most proximal aspect of health and chronic disease and you intervene before you're going to deal with medicine and it works. And people were happy. I saw couples that were happier for all the reasons we may talk about and just people were living better lives. And I said, you know what? We can do this on the mainstream side. There are problems on each side of this fence of medicine, but let's bring together the good people. So I'll go back. I'll go back be careful of my burnout, but I'll return to the, uh, to the other side. And so I did. I came back joined a large uh, system here in the Midwest because they, they said I could go ahead and start to expand this concept of a men's health clinic. So I came back and that's really what I'm doing at this point. I'm, you know, I'm experiencing the same friction that I met before on the mainstream side for innovation, for the ability to spend time with patients, uh, you know, competing in the environment now where it's, it's a, a productivity driven model. Um, and unfortunately that's it. It's a chronic disease driven model. Um, and I continue to change my brain. My brain has been changed to the superior physician. The superior provider is the one who prevents disease. The mediocre or inferior physician is the one that allows disease to occur and then treats it. And that's out of ancient medical texts. But that's the way I'm going to practice. In my second half of my career, that's what I'm going to do. I want to work to find a way to develop a better product that engages, educates, and empowers men to find a better path to staying healthy first. It happened to me, all right? So I was one of these soft, fat, round kids. I always was. And I went through several periods of transformation. The first one 
was when I was uh, doing my fellowship down in Baylor for male reproductive medicine and surgery in 2002. I checked my testosterone and I was in the 270 range. It explained a lot of things, I thought. So I went through, and you guys might not know this, but there was a, a program called Body for Life. And the guy's name was Bill Phillips. It was a book. It was a challenge program you'd go through for three months where you change your nutrition, gave you some exercise information. I did it twice. I lost 40 pounds, completely changed myself. And I felt great. I came back, started my practice, got busy again, and went through some issues, gained some more weight. And I went through three or four of those episodes. But finally, with the birth of my first set of twins, I realized I was a little bit older. I was 44 when I had them. They're now seven. And my back hurt. I was overweight again. I was working too hard. So I went through the changes of behavior, lifestyle, fixing some biochemistry, adopting some mindfulness practices, and my life changed. So I know it works. And when people see that, when the patients see that, you they engage with you. Oh, gosh. I am just, I just love hearing your story. It resonates with me so much. And, and so much of my personal journey as well. Um, and I think one thing you said that I want to zero in on is that you had this shift in thinking where you started to really believe that the superior physician is the one who makes people healthy, who generates health and wellness. And I just want to drill into this more because I think we, we come from this culture in medicine where we're indoctrinated with this idea that the most invasive interventions, you know, the, the, biggest things that we're doing are the heroic things. And there's this sort of like trope of this surgeon, you know, with the bone saw doing the, you know, coronary artery bypass graph and the patients on ECMO. And it's like, oh my God, this person's a savior and a hero and this like deity like figure. And I think what you and I both having been trained as surgeons, I think, and then kind of waking up to more some of this, like, whoa, maybe there's another way. Um, I really started to feel like in my, in, in my surgical training that you know, me going in and busting a hole in the sinus and sucking out pus wasn't actually necessarily the heroic thing. Getting the patient healthy, reducing their inflammation, helping them actually improve their overall wellness, that was heroic, but it's a much gentler and almost like looked down upon. It's like, that's that's nutrition. That's this niche thing that is almost like wimpified, you know, and almost like below, I mean, I'm being a little, maybe overstating a little bit, but almost like below doctors to focus on. And really flipping that script and realizing like there is nothing more valuable we could do for a patient than counsel them on these dietary and lifestyle factors that actually change physiology that actually create fundamental health in their bodies which unfortunately most surgeries can't do you know taking something out removing something in the body changing anatomy it can be helpful in many cases but doesn't necessarily always actually change core physiology that generates health so I'm curious if that if that resonates with you or if, if how that applies to urology and, and your surgical practice. Well, so it absolutely does. And I, I don't want to make people think that what I'm going to say here, that I have a little line that I use a lot with my patients, and it's really from Marty McCary, who is uh, from... <sighs> yes. And so we are so good at playing whack-a-mole or putting out the fires, okay? And that's what we do and, and in, on the mainstream side. But what really matters is taking away the matches. Okay, so if I can empower that man to understand his choices and what it's going to do to his ability to work in the bedroom that night, it's unbelievable. And so you have to spend that time. And you're, what you just said is so interesting because I've literally been told by a CMO of my current system, you don't bill like a urologist. And I said, well, I'm a modern urologist and I'm a men's health doctor. 
I'm a men's metabolic health doctor that's under the umbrella of urology. Welcome to the tip of the spear of traditional medicine. Because that's the other thing I was going to say. I see us, those of us like you and, and like me and other people that I've kind of allied around me in my system, as traditional medicine. What we're actually doing, I think now, is alternative medicine. If we go back to that traditional, when we know it, food is medicine, exercise is medicine, the studies all show it. The best studies show it's social support, exercise, and diet that gives everyone the best outcomes. You know, if we've all heard about, you know, if, if, a, if a medicine could do what exercise does, everyone would buy it, right? Um, and so why not do it? Um, and so, yeah, it totally resonates with me. It completely resonates with me to the extent that when, when he said it to me, I looked at him and I said, you're too far gone. I said, you are so blinded and, and, and your silo, your, your, your ability to understand what we really should be doing. It, it's really, it's embarrassing to some extent. And I've heard it from so many leaders in different healthcare systems that, you know, at times I can really vacillate between wanting to support it and then getting aggravated. And that, that is a trigger point for me that I have to manage. <laughs> but yes, it's, I want a new, a, a path that is incentivized somehow so that we can provide this product to people. And to come back to urology and why it's important, I see young men, all right? You as women, you see your gynecologist beginning with the onset of menses. Men, they leave their pediatrician. Oftentimes, the first doctor they're going to see is me. They want a vasectomy. They can't get someone pregnant. Uh, they're having some ED issues. I I basically can become that first doctor that they see after their pediatrician. And so more and more men are coming in now with early manifestations of metabolic dysfunction. And it's manifesting through their penis. All right. We know that erectile dysfunction is an incredibly strong independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular events. It's proven. It's not a question. It's proven. It's more significant than the risk factor of smoking. And then you combine that with insulin resistance, and it's even more significant. So uh, the Endocrine Society just uh, had their meeting recently, and one of the papers presented, so scary. Y young kids, the children and adolescents with hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance have smaller testicles. So it's right there. It's right there for me to be at that proximal aspect to intervene with low-hanging fruit for all men. So if I can step in and stop their bad behaviors and put them on a better path, their health span and lifespan is going to be extended. And that's what I'm saying. I don't know what's important to other people, but everyone's got something that's going to trigger them to want to be better in terms of their health. I want to be there with an outstretched hand as that provider when that moment happens. That gentleman that you guys had on recently who talked about prostate cancer, case in point, was perfect. His issue, his trigger was his diagnosis of prostate cancer. He then said, wow, I've got to do something. I love, I love talking about prostate cancer in this setting because in this country, maybe every 18 minutes, a man dies of prostate cancer. Every 36 seconds, a man dies of cardiovascular disease. So my statement to all these guys who come in, I say, do you know what the number one cause of death with a guy with prostate cancer is? Cardiovascular disease. That's where I see my purpose. I see my purpose is, you know, I took out a lot of prostates back in the day, but I wasn't robot trained because I'm too old. So I haven't taken out a prostate forever and I won't again. But I'd step in and I'm going to say under the urology umbrella, I'm going to step into the men's metabolic health arena and actually help more men. And so 
I want to be there when a guy has that motivating factor, whether it be a cancer diagnosis, a divorce, a chest pain event, a birth of a grand grandson or grandchild. That's where I see urology as perfectly set up to really help men. So you you called yourself a men's metabolic health physician, sort of under the heading of urology. I love that framework for two reasons. One, because I think it touches on this this really forward thinking perspective that I think some physicians are starting to wake up to, which is that we really need to be more systems biology focused and look at the systems and kind of see almost like these subspecialties as downstream manifestations of core pathways that are kind of going awry. So we've got the cardiologist, we've got the urologist, we've got, um, you know, the OBGYNs dealing with polycystic ovarian syndrome, but it's like, when you step back, like what you've done and see like, okay, well, what's the link actually connecting all of these? And in our current system with 42 subspecialties, it it almost like blinds us to the fact that there is this common link, um, that there's honestly no real doctor for, I mean, guess internal medicine, but you know, we're not even in, in the primary care, we're not thinking, we're still playing the whack-a-mole medicine. We're not thinking about those core physiologic links. So I want to just, I would love to hear from you if we can start breaking down some of the the mechanistic links between metabolic issues and men's health issues, and specifically maybe touching on erectile dysfunction and then also infertility. And our our our, our audience definitely likes to get nerdy, so like feel free to to <laughs> go into some of the science. Sure. So ED is a great kind of system and model to look at. And it's interesting that that the development and, and the understanding of nitric oxide and endothelial dysfunction all came through a, a lab at UCLA. Uh, one of the colleagues academically that I know, Dr. Jake Rafer, was a urologist, is a urologist, excuse me there. And back in the 80s, he was in an elevator and had it open up in front of him when he was going between meetings and he looked across the hall and he saw a, a heading on a lab that said vascular smooth muscle lab. He walked right into that lab because he just knew he needed to. He was studying a molecule that was involved with erectile dysfunction that turned out to be nitric oxide. He walked right into that guy's lab, turned out to be Ignaro, Dr. Ignaro, the pharmacologist who got the Nobel prize for figuring out what NO was. And so those two put together the concept of how NO worked with the physiology of erections, and boom, look what we have now. We have the PD-5 inhibitors, Viagra, and the like. So, And I think that is one of the most proximal metabolic actors and, and messengers involved. So endothelial dysfunction and nitric oxide, oxidative stress, that's where that intersection is. I think with, uh, with men's health, ED, and metabolic changes in cardiovascular disease. Now, if we Slow down for a second and think about that. It is actually a proximal actor probably in all three of the main issues uh, that are chronic diseases. You got cardiovascular disease, you've got cancer, and you've got neurodegenerative disorders. They probably all are going to basically come down to a lot of endothelial dysfunction, chronic inflammation, and oxidative stress. And so we're talking about that in the penis and ED. So for get, to get an erection, uh, I try to explain this to patients. Think of uh, the two cylinders or two bio biologic cylinders in the penis called corpora cavernosa, and they're specialized blood vessels. I, you know, I'm in Wisconsin now, so I say, imagine a bratwurst that you snap, and you've got casing on the outside and meat in the middle. I said that meat in the middle is smooth muscle tissue, and that casing on the outside is kind of a tough casing called tunica. 
And I said, for the penis to work right, that smooth muscle in the middle of that has to be real healthy. It has to expand. It has to relax. And the way it does that is through multiple mechanisms, but there's a thing called nitric oxide. And nitric oxide, as we age, goes down, and it goes down in many, many other conditions, smoking, diabetes, uh, lots of different things. And when that happens, that tissue does not work right. I said, if it's working right, the smooth muscles completely relax, blood flows in, and it closes off the venous drainage of, of the penis, that uh, these little veins that live on the underside of the casing of that bratwurst. When it all works perfectly, everything works well. But this tissue is probably the most exquisitely sensitive tissue to low oxygen tension in the body. So it is the canary in the coal mine. It's the check engine light. It is the thing we should be listening to. Um, because as you start to get problems with decreased nitric oxide uh, production, and that can be from atherosclerosis, decreased blood flow. It can be from low T. And that's a huge interest of mine because testosterone, when it's low, does not allow nitric oxide synthase to work right. It is an androgen-dependent enzyme, and it has been well-described and proven. And so low T, which is a huge, huge part of my practice, is a common denominator, and we'll get to this in a minute. But all these things intersect, and when that happens, the tissues do not, the, the, the tissues actually don't do well. And I have to sit and explain this to men, because I already said I want to engage, educate, and empower them, and they have to understand what's happening to their own body. So if, if their T is low, if they have diabetes, if they have neuropathy from it, one of the things they're going to start to not have happen are nighttime erections. So I use this example of nighttime erections because I, that is there, not because back in when we were here a thousand, hundred thousand years ago, someone was going to hop on top of us while we were asleep. When we get nighttime erections, it's actually a preventative maintenance mechanism to maintain the health of the smooth muscle tissue inside the penis. That tissue needs high oxygen exposure on a regular basis, or else it's going to start to go through the process of apoptosis and, and conversion from smooth, mel, uh, smooth muscle to collagen. So there have been a lot of studies done. I don't know how you know we can talk about it. They're, they're interesting studies. But the appropriate erectile response requires a certain ratio of smooth muscle to collagen in the penis. And as we age and we're exposed to these chronic disease pressures, you lose smooth muscle content and collagen content goes up. And you actually get fat inside the penis right underneath that casing. And what that does is the first step to most ED is venous leak. It's not you're not getting enough blood into the system. It's not getting trapped to develop the pressure head. So as that tissue scars, it doesn't relax as well to close those veins, and the amount of that tissue is smaller. And so you start to get ED. When you lose nighttime erections, that natural, it's like doing push-ups in your sleep. When you're not getting that natural exercise for that tissue exposed to the high oxygen tension there, that tissue starts to scar, and you start to get ED. Now, that's the nighttime erection loss due to low T. When your T dips below about 250 or 200 nanograms per deciliter, that's when you start to see that. It's also why we start to see it in men initially after a prostatectomy because that stops for a while too. But it's an excellent exp explanation to try to uh, under help people understand why that tissue needs to be exercised on a regular basis. And that's why we get, we think we get nocturnal erections. Um, and it's, it, We've done a lot of studies to understand different things that are happening at different points of the pathophysiology, but it really boils down to nitric oxide uh, and oxidative stress in some of these issues. And it's and this is a specialized vascular tissue, okay? And so nitric oxide synthase is the enzyme 
that makes nitric oxide. And it can come out of nerves. It can be part of an endothelial cell. And in the penis, both are there. Both are there. And so if T is low, you're going to have decreased uh, drive to make nitric oxide. And then that, that whole kind of uh, second messenger system that drives erection through um, through cyclic GMP is not as efficient. And so you start to have scarring of those tissues. Those tissues, when they scar, they've done it three to five years before you're going to see changes in other vessels like the coronary or the carotid vessels. That's why it's this early warning system. And they've actually done studies showing the main vessel leading into the penis or vessels, they're very small as well. So that smaller diameter is going to show flow limiting issues before you're going to see flow limiting issues in the coronaries. So it is a great model to look at and also to predict you have a problem. Now, not all ED is vascular in nature. So I'm speaking specifically of vascular ED. Um, And we can, you know, there are other issues with regard to neurologic disease and those types as well. But then also psychogenic ED, kind of not not part of the topic of what we're talking about here. Um, But the health of the tissues of the penis are a great way to measure the health of endothelial function. And that's, you know, that's really a big part of what we're talking about. Amazing, amazing explanation. Um, thank you. And um, so a couple things I want to I want to follow up on there. One, just sort of a maybe a short question is you mentioned that aside from vascular issues for erectile dysfunction, there's also psychogenic and neurologic. But one thing I was thinking about when reflecting on this, you know, preparing for this conversation was, you know, is there an element of metabolic issues that actually may contribute as well to the psychogenic and neurologic part as well in the sense that like, are some of the neurogenic causes actually from nerve damage that are related to metabolic issues? Or is that like more neurogenic issues from damage from like prostate surgery and things like that? But like, is there even a, and then with psychogenic, it's like, I'm thinking about depression, anxiety, things like that. And we see much higher rates of depression, anxiety in people with type two diabetes. So even in the non-vascular bucket, there potentially, I wonder if there's even still somewhat of an increased risk factor Absolutely. when you have metabolic issues. It's like, it just has its hands on everything, you know? And and, and so that's, and that's absolutely right. Because the end functional unit of the erection is a smooth muscle cell. The smooth muscle cell doesn't, doesn't care why the nitric oxide is there or not. And so anything that's going to impact that. So if you've got anything like uh, the neuropathy of, of diabetes affecting nerves, absolutely. That will then, that because of that issue will ultimately lead to that cascade of changes of ap- increased apoptosis and loss of smooth muscle content in the penis and therefore ED. You've got a guy who's got just that wiring, that the type A personality that if he had a bad experience once intimately, he can't get over it, even though his functionality is fine from a plumbing standpoint. But now he's elevated his sympathetic tone. Mm. Now his norepinephrine is just high. And that is not good. I mean, what is it? Norepinephrine, for m- most of your listeners know this, but that's part of the sympathetic discharge. That's the fight or flight response. That is an evolutionary response to protect us. And so I say this to all my patients. I said, when we were cave people, um, if you were getting chased by something trying to eat you and you saw a nice cave lady over there, if you stopped to look at that person, you're in trouble. <laughs> you, the sympathetic nervous system is there to mobilize your ability to save yourself. And that means run away or fight. And getting an erection is not on that. So from an evolutionary standpoint, the sympathetic is there to turn off drive, turn off erection. So if you elevate sympathetic tone in someone with a psychogenic component to their ED, they cannot relax that smooth muscle. 
Okay. So the, the, the uh, end uh, mediators as a sympathetic nervous system, they do just the opposite of what nitric oxide does. They contract. That's how, that's how we detumesce after the event. That's how the, mm. that's how the erection goes away. So when you've elevated sympathetic tone, you are swimming upstream to try to get an erection because those, that smooth muscle cell, remember, it doesn't care where it's coming from. The smooth muscle cell is either going to expand and close those veins and let blood flow in, or it's going to contract. So it becomes a tug of war. And so, and unfortunately, there is no blocker for the norepinephrine and for mm -hmm. the adrenaline, uh, you know, kind of sympathetic discharge, because we know if you block that, you're in trouble. So I just had a gentleman this morning in the office, that exact issue, and I can't explain why, but I know what his issue is and he does too, but it's purely psychogenic. Mm. Um, and so, I, you know, I recommended some mindfulness exercises and some yoga and things like that. And, you know, what, what urologist is going to do that? And so you have to, when you're going to take care of a man, when you're talking about intimate and sexual dysfunction, you, it takes time to develop the rapport and then develop the trust. And that's what I'm trying to explain to these people. But when you can start to explain some of these mechanisms and explain that, dude, your A1C is 11.3. Nerves don't work acutely there. Okay. You, when you control your sugar, you'll have a better erection the next day because that is true. And I said, so acutely, you're going to be better, but you're also going to help maintain the health of your smooth muscle cells if you get a better control there. And so another issue there that I'll just mention in terms of that acuity and the chronicity issue was smoking. So some of the behavioral studies that they've done with ED and smoking are very interesting. If there's a, there was this old-fashioned device called a Rigiscan. It was basically a piece of tape that you'd put around the penis before you go to sleep. It would measure nocturnal erections. And there was a study uh, probably in the 90s that came out where they took a group of smokers and they asked one half of them to stop smoking and the other ones could keep smoking. And they put the strain gauge on them. They put the, they put the ridges scan on them and had to go, go to sleep. With just one day of no smoking, they had much better nocturnal erections. So you can see acute improvements um, from these lifestyle factors that we know impact the vasoconstriction and the, and the vasodilation. And so acutely you can see improvements. But if you're doing that chronically, that chronic depletion of highly oxygenated blood flow into the penis is having downstream effects that will make it long term. And, and you know, it will, will change everything. So when you get an erection, your oxygen tension goes from quadruples. The PO2 goes from about 25 to 100. Uh, and not just the pressure within the penis, but the oxygen content, the PO2 quadruples as well. So it needs that erection, uh, that, that, that blood flow in and out to maintain the health of, of the penis because nitric oxide synthase needs oxygen as part of the equation that helps create nitric oxide through nitric oxide synthase. So if it doesn't have enough oxygen, it does not, um, it, it does not, uh, work totally effectively. And one of the other, you know, there's, as I said before, endothelial ENOS instead of NOS. So NOS, nitric oxide synthase, is what is going to come out of a nerve ending. Endothelial nitric oxide synthase lives in endothelial cells, which line the sinusoids of these smooth muscles in the penis. One of the triggers for the ENOS to work is literally the initial stretching that happens of the cell from the neuronal nitric oxide that's released. So you want that, you want that stretching to occur that also triggers another enzyme system that makes nitric oxide. It's one of the reasons why shockwave therapy works for ED, which is kind of a newer regenerative therapy, but it's causing shear stress 
on that tissue that activates uh, that uh, nitric oxide synthase. Mm. So when you actually get into the individual pathways, it's fascinating, but it's very complicated. It, but it, but they all, the common nexus, the commonality is endothelial function being healthy or not, nitric oxide uh, and oxidative stress. They all kind of come together there. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I heard you say earlier that I think is one of the most mind blowing things I think I've ever heard is that metabolic issues lead to the penis transforming from healthy, smooth muscle to more collagen and fat. So basically through some of these lifestyle related decisions that we're making, like we're converting a healthy penis to a fat scarred penis. Like Mm -hmm. that is crazy to think about that the actual histology that the, the cellular um, composition of this part of the body is like changing into something different. I mean, that's, it's kind of the visual of that is quite profound. Um, so thank you for mentioning that one. <laughs> um, but, uh, very motivating, I would say. Um, but in terms of making healthy choices, I think the other thing I just want to drill into, cause I, I do think it's important and it gets a little bit technical is you talked about like endothelial function, reactive oxygen species, inflammation, and nitric oxide production are some of the really key core physiology elements that are perturbed in both chronic disease, like uh, heart disease, cancer, and neurodegenerative disease, but then of course also with erectile dysfunction. Could you give a quick primer for people listening about what endothelial dysfunction and maybe oxidative stress are? I think most people are familiar with chronic inflammation. But sure. like how these these things are linked to insulin resistance and high blood sugar. And that's incredibly complicated and nuanced. <laughs> um, and so, and I am not by any means an expert in these pathways, but I have, you know, a pretty good understanding. And it's interesting because it like just the testosterone aspect of it is a giant factor. Because when you start to recognize that that system that makes, makes nitric oxide, which main, which is basically when we say endothelial dysfunction, we typically mean that dysfunction of the lining of the blood flow uh, of the blood uh, vessel due to low nitric oxide. So nitric oxide synthase only works well when testosterone is healthy. So that touches all of this. But um, when we talk about oxidative stress, we, we need a balance of, of oxidative species, of inflammation um, and inflammation species and species that quell that. And the problems that occur is when that gets out of balance. And when you have elevated oxidative stress, and it is a generalized term, but that will lead to damage, whether it be through advanced glycation products and uh, products and some of these other issues, but it will cause the in- eventual changes that we that we think of when we think of vascular disease when we think of hardening of arteries and plaque formation and thickening of the intima media of of the of the uh, of the vessels and then that same inflammation or oxidative stress also impacts our genetics our dna it will induce things called apoptosis which a lot of your listeners know about but it's programmed cell death it's, it's the way we kind of manage our cells and, and, and recycle cells. And then there's a whole other thing called senescence, but we won't get into that. Um, but that whole pattern, when we start, when, you, when chronic inflammation starts to push that too much, and whether that be in a blood vessel, then you start to see the classic changes of atherosclerosis and vascular disease. And in the penis, we've discussed some of those, but in, in more of the typical vessels, 
you're going to see those changes first at the lining. And there are inflammatory factors like IL-6, TNF-alpha, and other things like that that are driving some of these pathways and then leading to some of the developments of, of uh, connective tissue changes and, and vascular changes. Um, and, and you will see it in all different areas. You see it in the brain. You see it in the brain in Alzheimer's patients and other kind of degenerative, neurodegenerative disorders. And so why, why is this? Well, it's interesting that you bring this up because what did we just learn about Viagra and the PD-5 inhibitors and what it does to the brain? 70% reduction in Alzheimer's. We've known this. We've understood this. We've thought about it. We kind of wonder, is this going to happen? Boom. Now we know it happens. And it's all going through this process of inflammation at the level of the kind of the most important interface of the cellular interfaces of, of our different systems. And so instead of thinking, as you and I have talked before, instead of thinking individual organ systems, when we back up and look at a bigger awareness of what's the common thread of the entire system that we're looking at, it's this interface between inflammation, oxidative stress, and, and then the other mediators, uh, other mediators like nitric oxide, um, as, as it decreases, some of that oxidative stress can start to do the bad things. And, and I, I wish I had a better grasp to be able to describe all the different pathways, but it's all very complicated. Mm. No, I think that's a great overview. And I think it's, um, you know, uh, it's a complex web and, you know, for each of these topics that we're talking about, endothelial dysfunction, inflammation, oxidative stress, there's probably like 50,000 papers about this right. stuff. And it's it's really great. And But just even having the high level view of how they're interconnected, and really we're talking about like the blood vessel and um, and how we get oxygen and blood to all parts of the body. Um, I think that that basic framework of like you, that is required for essentially all aspects of health and our current diet and lifestyle is completely throwing a wrench in that system. I think mm -hmm. that's a key takeaway for people. Like, um, need blood flow. I actually, I was talking to a, um, orthopedic surgeon who's very much aligned with a lot of the things, you know, we're talking about and very metabolically focused. And one, one thing he said that I thought was fascinating was that rotator cuff injuries, which are like super on the rise. And most people are not making a link between metabolic issues and something like a rotator cuff injury, but muscle to be strong and to not tear needs proper blood flow. It needs good metabolism. Um, and so he talked about how rotator cuff injuries are like erectile dysfunction of the shoulder. And it totally makes sense. Like if you're getting this microvascular issues to this tissue, it's going to become weak. It's going to be changed into sort of different type of tissue that's weaker and you're going to be more prone to tears. So eating for good vascular health can actually even potentially help like things like, uh, you know, prevention of a sports injury, which we just think like, oh, we're getting older and we played tennis and now we screwed up our shoulder. It's like, but how could you have built more biologic resilience by optimizing mm -hmm. your blood flow to prevent something like that from happening or just lowering the risk? So, um, but I just, you know, love the love erectile dysfunction of the shoulder, like just, right. just cracked me up. Um, so another physiology thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on is how metabolic issues lead to low testosterone. Cause I know there's some stuff around, you know, fat aromatizing testosterone to estrogen, but I would love to just hear like, what's the landscape of how men should be thinking about how, how their weight and other issues like cholesterol could actually be affecting their testosterone, which then feeds into both erectile dysfunction and sperm production, which gets into the fertility stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, low T 
as an andrologist, I see the health of the man through the two outputs of the testis, which is sperm and also testosterone. So the exocrine output and the endocrine output, and both of them are, are, are dropping at faster rates than ever. Okay. Sperm counts going down 50 to 60% in the last 40 years. Testosterone, uh, also going down, not quite as significantly, but certainly going down. And that is not to make it the whole thing, but it is unrecognized. And I do not feel that the endocrine world and the mainstream is recognizing the importance of healthy testosterone levels as it applies to insulin sensitivity. Um, so as men get, as men get heavier, obviously they start to develop deposits of fat. And when you get the visceral adiposity, we all know that's the hormonally active fat where the IL-6, the two, TNF alpha and all these other inflammatory mediators, this is active fat. And that fat is actually acting, or, and th those mediators act in multiple areas. It can act centrally and it can act in the testis itself. And so what we've learned is when you have metabolic dysfunction, hyperinsulinemia, and, and uh, obesity, you see the increase of these cytokines. And they're acting centrally, it appears at the hypothalamic level. So you're getting, re and whether it's working through kispeptin or whether it's working through, through, um, the nerves that actually are, are involved at the, uh, in the hypothalamus for the release of GNRH, you're seeing reduced GNRH production. So you're seeing lower gonadotropins out of the pituitary, specifically lower LH and FSH. So you're seeing a central component, but then you're also seeing these inflammatory mediators impacting the lighting cell within the testis. So it's touching everything, um, obesity and these inflammatory cytokines. And the pathways are multiple. There isn't just one. It's happening locally in the testis, and it's happening in the control mechanism of the HPG axis as well, the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So then you see T come down. And so as T is coming down, you're going to start to impact the, the uh, efficiency of nitric oxide production. So you're now promoting endothelial dysfunction. And another thing I say to them is ED equals ED equals ED. E erectile dysfunction equals endothelial dysfunction equals early death. So I try to tie it all together. Uh, that's, you know, I use that right after I've used the fire in the matches line. Um, but my point is, I, it is low T is a bigger deal than I think we realize it. And granted, I'm only talking about men here. I, I do have some experience uh, in taking care of women, but really I've been focused on men for the last five or five years or so. Um, but the impact that this has is staggering. And so I have been trying to educate the, uh, the local endocrine, uh, system, uh, providers with the data out of Europe on long-term testosterone replacement in type two diabetics with low T and ED. But what we're seeing is as you replace T in these men, not only are you seeing improvements in all their markers of insulin resistance and sensitivity, you're curing a higher percentage of type 2 diabetics. So a study came out about two years ago, uh, and it was a long-term real-world experience kind of clinic-based study. But this is what we need to pay attention to. We don't live in vitro. We live in vivo. And so too many studies right now I talk about them being in vitro. They, they don't take into the, the real-world experience. This was an 11-year study. They looked at hundreds of men that they've been following, and it was a group of men with diabetes and low T. Half of them said, I'll take T. The other said, I don't want it. And they've been following these men for 11 years. 
all of them getting tea. This is fascinating. In 11 years, the paper they just presented, 34% of them no longer diabetic. Um, all of them have otherwise improved measures of A1C fasting plasma glucose and, and, and fasting insulin. In the group that elected not to take testosterone, none of them got, none of them are cured, but none of them are better. They're all worse. So, and the only difference is they were both given the standard treatment for type 2 diabetes. This was in Europe. The only difference is that group got a testosterone unde undecanoate and they got it to normalize their T. And they did it because of the, uh, the what we know is probably happening at the level of the, uh, uh, of uh, nitric oxide, uh, of uh, nitric oxide synthase, and also the ability to maintain more lean muscle mass. And then you lose that visceral adiposity. So you lose that drive of those inflammatory cytokines. Um, and, and it's not just one thing. There's a psychogenic aspect of replacing testosterone because that guy now has more energy. You give him more energy, he wants to go to the gym. He doesn't want to go sit home in his man cave in Wisconsin and fill up his couch. He wants to go do something. And, and so I get so upset when some of these people lock on to one thing. Well, yeah, you know, testosterone causes prostate cancer. I said, first, you're wrong. Go read. Secondarily, you just blocked that guy that was getting better that I put on T. Now you scared him with misinformation. I said, go back and read and see. We now know testosterone does not cause prostate cancer. So my, um, one of the things I get passionate about is when some other providers kind of gum up the works to actually start to get people back to healthy lifestyles and behaviors with their old training that they haven't kept current on because they're buried under the RVU wheel of seeing 40 patients a day. And it, it, it's just so unfortunate that you really start helping people and then they get derailed. Uh, but it's, it's, part of, it's part of the torch I carry now, and we all do, because we have to deal with the knowledge that we've acquired kind of through functional concepts in integrative medicine that is really the traditional medicine that we should be offering as a first path. Um, and so I kind of got off the, uh, the topic there, but testosterone and, and it being low is, is, from, is primarily um, in, in people who are obese and with type 2 diabetics, you're going to see it both from a central mechanism as well as a primary mechanism in, in, the, uh, in the testis. So why why are men, I mean, you were mentioning that both sperm count is precipitously declining and also it looks like testosterone may also be declining sort of at large. What are the main uh, lifestyle and dietary factors that are leading to that? And is there anything that people can do naturally to increase their testosterone as well? I, I realize it's a bit of a chicken in the egg situation because sometimes people's tea is low and they're not m motivated, you know, or to, to maybe work out or do those things. But if they do, are there things that people can do to raise their testosterone naturally? Ab absolutely. So to, to, to that, our diet, our exercise, and sleep are the first three things I'm going to talk about. You know, diet, 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 nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. And diet is a four-letter word to me. So I talk about lifestyle changes and nutritional aspects and getting to a clean diet Depending who I'm talking to, I'll change the way I talk about it. But we've all said shop at the outside of the grocery store. We've all used that line, right? You know, on the outside. Um, or if I'm talking to other people, I said, pick, don't, don't stop eating out of bags, uh, bags and boxes. Stop, stop picking up food that has a nutrition label on it. Okay. It's not food. You start eating real food and start moving based on whatever their status is. What can they do? 
and if I need to, I'll, I'll, I'll employ the guy next door, the exercise physiologist that works across the hall from us to try to help that guy with some barriers to try to understand what he may be able to do to exercise if he's got a bad back or something else. But nutrition, movement, and sleep, and then anything having to do with chronic stress, okay? I haven't even talked about anything in terms of medicine yet, okay? Those are the answers to how do I maintain and, and increase my, my own testosterone. Um, and, uh, that's, if I could just get people to do that, you know, that's our problem today. I want the pill. I want the pill that's going to make me better. And that's what you hear from so many people, because that's kind of the way our, our system has developed. We want something now we want it free and we want it to work perfectly. And this, some of this is hard work. So you have to wait for that motivating, uh, that motivating thing to happen for a guy to, to want to uh, engage in that. But once he wants to, We've got all the knowledge and, uh, and ability to, to help him help himself to begin with. Um, now, what you were asking about testosterone and why is it dropping? You know, the Endocrine Society, as I just mentioned, just presented a, a brand new information on young children and adolescents with endothelial or, or with hyperinsulinemia and elevated fast, uh, fasting glucose already, they have smaller testicles. Okay. So we are seeing this. We don't call type two diabetes adult onset anymore. And we know why one of the biggest groups that's getting it diagnosed at the highest rate are younger kids. You know, it, it, people, uh, teenagers and 20 year olds are now being diagnosed with what used to take 40 years to occur because they're not moving and their diet has changed. Uh, and so we're seeing a development. And this is a big problem because as we begin to move into metabolic dysfunction in the second decade of life, we're going to see all these downstream problems, the top three comorbidities and, and, and mortality issues of vascular disease and neurodegenerative disorders and cancer. We're going to see it earlier. So we're going to, we're going to shortchange everyone's health span uh, unless we can step in. We've been here for what, 200,000 years in our current form. And whatever we've been doing, really, we've only been doing this way for the last 50 to 100 years. So modernity is killing us very quickly. Um, and sometimes I'll shift not to a conspiracy theory kind of uh, mode, but I said, if you really look at what's happening to testosterone, but more specifically to sperm counts, which we'll get to in a minute, this is a big problem. You know, we're, we're seeing sperm counts go down anywhere but 50 to 60% in 40 years. And remember, that's only in developed countries. What is that saying to our ability to propagate our species? And so you have to be careful because you can lose some people into woo-woo land if you start talking about that too much. However, there's a real message there, and it's not one study. Those studies have been starting to pour out since the late 80s and early 90s, and they all reproduce the same message. We're doing something wrong. And so if you think about it in the most biologic way, Mother Nature will speak through what, what we're doing, and she is right now. Um, so testosterone is definitely dropping per decade. So a 30-year-old now has a testosterone that's lower than a 30-year-old of 20 or 30 years ago. This is some recent data that came out of University of Miami, their urology program. They followed young men, and they've been seeing this obvious downward trend for each decade uh, as we've moved on. Testosterone levels are dropping. And it, I'm sure, I mean, the, the biggest thing that we're attributing that to is obesity. To answer the question, what do we think the link is? We think it's obesity. 
and probably through those obesogens that we were just talking about at the different, you know, the upper, uh, it, it, at the hypothalamic level, as well as endogenously right there in the testis. So we're having major issues there. And we, it's not just lifestyle. We're now seeing the epigen, probably the epigenetic impacts of their parents. So this is why it's so complicated. You know, the methylation patterns we're seeing are different based on was their parent, was one of their parents insulin resistant, type two diabetic. That will then increase the risk that their offspring also has smaller testes and lower testosterone. So it's all intertwined. It, it's, it's really fascinating and you can go dark quickly, but to keep it simple, we just start doing the right things and you've right the ship. Our, our bodies are pretty amazing. I went through it myself. You do the right things, the body writes the ship. It doesn't happen right away. And that's why I go back to that study from, uh, from Europe about the 11-year experience with testosterone replacement. Here in the United States, when I talked to my, some of my local endocrinologists, said, no, no, this paper said that that didn't happen. I said, that paper was following patients for six months on T. You've got to follow them for many years because of not just the acute effects, but some of these chronic effects that we've talked about that, well, you know, I talked about in the penis, uh, the, the maintenance of the health of that smooth muscle tissue when you have elevated T levels will maintain the preventative mechanisms of that smooth muscle tissue. If, you know, if T is low, that preventative maintenance is gone. And it's going to be the same thing, a preventative maintenance in a vessel in the, in the brain or the vessel in the heart in that patient. If they have low T, you're going to see progression of their problem. Uh, and so, uh, that that is kind of the testosterone side. We're clearly seeing a decrease in the endocrine output of the testis. Now, on the other side, when we talk about the sperm uh, sperm count decline, it is real and it is multifactorial. the The, the person that was the lead author on that uh, one of the one of the authors on that paper that came out in 2017 in Human Reproduction uh, Update that clearly showed amongst over 40,000 men is meta analysis. They looked at men from westernized and non-westernized countries, so basically developed and undeveloped countries. It was only in the developed countries where they saw the decline in the semen parameters. In the more tribal communities in Africa and Asia, they didn't see any declines. Now, the quality and the amount of data was not quite as robust, but it was still there. So only in developed countries like ours do we see this decrease in the semen parameters, and they're precipitous, and it's corresponding to the generalized decrease in infertility we're seeing, about 1% per year. Um, the, the couples that are seeking ART, which is assisted reproductive technologies, whether it be inseminations or IVF, is going up 5 to 10% per year. And we're not really responding to this. And I was so disappointed when this first, when this last paper came out in 2017, it got about one second in all the main media outlets. And then the glossy journal GQ came up with an article on it. And in there was one of the fathers, one of what we consider the, one of the fathers of, of andrology, one of the big fellowship guys. I won't use his name, but he has a line in there saying, well, yeah, you know, they are going down, but it doesn't matter. We have ART. So we'll always be able to get people pregnant. See, that's what I mean. Why are we playing whack-a-mole? Why are we putting out the fire? Why not take away the match? All right. And so it's, it's such an opportunity to impact someone early when they come in with that infertility, that low T, that ED, and we can improve their lifespan and their health span, uh, but we just don't do it. Uh, and so I, the, the, the reasons we're seeing some low sperm counts and the reason we're seeing some of this is multifactorial, but 
it is going to be tied to our obesity and metabolic health epidemic, number one. Number two uh, is absolutely going to be um, sleep-related issues and stress. And the nutritional aspect, which I should say with number one, the quality of our food, the endocrine-disrupting chemicals, which way back when, when someone started talking about that, a lot of people just kind of wrote them off. But we now know it's real. The phytoestrogens, the xenoestrogens, we are seeing real changes related to estrogenization, whether it be anogenital differences in distance changes, things that have been conserved for millennia are now changing and are pointing to changes in our hormonal milieu in utero and during life. And so these are, these are very big issues with these endocrine disrupting chemicals, whether you're talking about insecticides, pesticides, estrogen that's getting into our water system from, from other uh, issues or estrogen mimics, you know, plastics uh, that end up in your, in your water bottle when you crack open that top. They've done the studies on the microplastics. All right. Those are estrogen mimics. Now, I think in the past, we probably wouldn't have been susceptible to some of those, but we've destroyed our gut such as that tiny lighting between the outside world and our immune system is now literally paper thin. And so our immune system isn't supposed to be seeing these things. And then it sees stuff it's not supposed to, and it's confused because they're mimics. They look like estrogen. And now we're activating our immune system in ways that's leading to other immune disorders, whether it be you know, the skin diseases we're seeing, the other GI, we haven't touched on gut issues, but it, it all ties together. It all ties together. Uh, and the, the impact on sperm production from our diet and what we put in is, is, is very telling that we need to make some changes because yes, it's nice. We have ART, you know, I have four kids from IVF. Great. I love it. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. But we, we should recognize that this is, this is a signal. And, and then I use one more. I, I like to try to engage people. And this is another thing I will say. Remember that horrible story of that building in Florida that pancaked on itself in Surfside. That homeowners association for years blew off their preventative maintenance. They didn't want to do the difficult thing. They didn't want to spend the money to take care of their building. They saw the cracks and then within the cracks, they saw that there was these rebar that were rusting and then doing more things on the inside, almost like the lack of nitric oxide. And what happened? Eventually, a horrible thing happened to that building, that pancake. And so I tried to explain this to my leaders. I said, we really should elevate this concept of prevention because there's some signals here that we're blowing off. And one of the biggest ones, I think, is the semen analysis data that has been reproduced so many times. And, and some evidence-based medicine kind of aficionados kind of normalize and say, well, this study showed this, so I don't know if this is real or not. Back up and look at the big picture. I could just listen to you talk all day. I mean, this is, I just think everything you said is so important. And so just the big picture, you touched on microbiome, endocrine disrupting chemicals, leaky gut, you know, chronic inflammation, sperm counts. It's just, it's amazing. And then what's happening to our youth, which I think cannot be overstated. Let me just come back because I, when I was fighting for myself with my local leaders to explain why I was of value, to explain why they were getting written responses from my patients that said, he's the only doctor that I'm staying here for. Now, I'm not doing this to pat myself on the back. 
I'm here to show that the value is here and the end user is asking for it. And, and there are handfuls of doctors like me when they say, whoa, I, I'm going to listen to this guy because you, you engage, you engage them in, in this conversation and you empower them so that they now say, this is my responsibility. Mm. This is my responsibility, and we have offloaded that responsibility in this world of, of, of Medicare and payers. Well, insurance doesn't pay for this, so it must not matter. Oh, you know what? You know, you know how that is. It drives me crazy. And so I have to try to get the patient in whatever way I can to hook in. So I was talking to my leader about this, and I said, Rob, I won't use his name. I said, doctor, I said, this is what I do. This is why I see 20 patients instead of 50. I said, I do this, I do this, I do this. He gives me this blank stare. He's like, but you're a urologist. He goes, so we don't know how to compensate you. Are you primary care? Are you into chronology? Are you in fertility? Are you urology? And I looked at him and I said, I'm a doctor, all right? I am a men's metabolic health doctor. And if you can't understand that, we've got a bigger problem. Um, and so... That's when I, I have to be honest with myself that I can't come back from the well side of medicine to the sick side and fix it. Okay. So I have had words said to me, like, you may not be a good fit. You don't bill like a urologist. You don't do this. I said, I'm happy. I'm happy with that. I've been empowered. I'm, I now feel empowered because I know my end user is feeling better. And when I close that door, I'm not working for the entity. I'm working for that person. And so working for that person is what makes me come back to work every day. Now, hopefully they'll figure out a way to compensate me appropriately, but I'm not going back to that old way of just cranking the patients through because we need to do better. And, and there are so many other signals out there that our current delivery system is not working well. I truly just got shivers when you said that like line, like I am a doctor, because it's like, it's just we have gotten so far off course, you know, I think as a medical culture and, um, through the lens of billing, what you're doing could look like a failure in some way. I mean, you're still billing a lot, but it's like, it's crazy that success, the success criteria is not based on how well the patient's doing. It's based on the RVUs and the billing. And it's like, where did we go so off course? (laughs) It's like, and I also want to highlight for people when you said 20 versus 50 patients, that is per day, mm-hmm. per day. But so, you know, this is a ma- machine. Um, and, and the, that, that person who's doing the 50 patients a day, no matter what is happening with those outcomes is going to be celebrated, right? Like that. I mean, obviously That's if it's like exactly. terrible patient care, it's a problem, but generally speaking, that person is going to be the star of a department. <laughs> it's right. like, what are we well- doing? When the measuring stick is only volume, that's what that is. That's the culture. And so I kept, I tried to introduce that word during the last couple of conversations I had. The culture here is not one of promoting health. It is a promoting illness. And I said, we've got to change that. And they said, well, no, no, it's our structure that does that. I said, you can use those words interchangeably. I said, but culture is by what you do, not what you say. And so when you sit here and you reimburse someone and you and you compensate them based on volume, that's what you're incentivizing. And, and so that's not really what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. But the problem is to do metabolic health well takes time. And so I, I, they, one guy said, you just have a TRT clinic. I said, yeah, but you, do you know what TRT is? I said, it's time, rapport, and trust. 
You spend the time, you get the report. Now you've got the trust of that guy. He'll do whatever you tell him Mm. and he'll do it because he looks at you and he's inspired by your (laughs) story. And number two, you start giving him a product. You give him a DEXA scan. You give him some a fasting insulin number that he hasn't looked at before. You give him a CRP. You do things that the other doctors haven't done, and you make a change. You bring him back, and you're like, look what you did. You almost gamify it, but guys want that. So when you give them a different product, and it resonates with them, they now are empowered to advocate for themselves. And and so um, it's it, there's so many opportunities in, in urology to do that well, especially in andrology. And so the people with my kind of mind are usually the guys who did an andrology fellowship because we get exposed to hypogonadism. And then when that opens up the whole world of metabolic health. Question for you may not be able to give an exact number for this, but I'm just curious, what is your hunch as someone who's really a leading kind of world expert in this of how much of the burden of, let me rephrase this, how much of the erectile dysfunction cases that we're seeing in the US do you think are either preventable or reversible if we fully dialed in our diet and lifestyle and improve metabolic health? You know, so that's, you'll, I'll spitball that, but it's, if you look at the organic uh, vascular causes and, and um, yeah, obviously we talked a little bit about in the past on, on the psychogenic impact, but uh, if you remove the spinal cord injuries and, and those other kind of neurologic injuries, um, I believe that of the vascular causes, probably 70 to 80% you could significantly prevent um, and, and improve. Now, the question of prevention, rehabilitation, improvement is a loaded question because how bad is it and how long has it been going on? That's the whole kind of concept of, of restorative and regenerative therapies for ED, whether it be right now shockwave is a big one, but there's this growing interest in platelet-rich plasma and, uh, and stem cell use. And there's signals there that in the right patient that can work, but it's still in the investigational phase. Shockwave, you can recover and rebuild so- a smooth muscle content in a rat penis, they've shown. Uh, so Shockwave turns on some of these pathways to heal uh, through vascular, neurologic, and stem cell recruitment pathways. So um, we can prevent some and recover some functionality of that vascular smooth muscle tissue. But I think if you step in early with the appropriate changes, as we all know what they are, um, uh, of, of metabolic improvement, you can change and stop the, the loss of smooth, health, healthy smooth muscle content within the corporate cavernosa and maintain that function. Now, age alone will march that on, okay? And so you, you're not going to be able to stop at all. But uh, I do believe probably three-quarters of this we could really have a major impact on. Um, and, you know, we haven't even talked about the levels kind of product and, and CGM and what that does. But part of this is engaging a man right there so he understands what his choices are doing. And so if I'm going to get him to really think about what is he eating and how is that affecting his erections, how is it affecting his insulin and sugar, when we start to empower them with that kind of information, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating how that's another big part of prevention of the sequelae of metabolic disease. I, you know, they, it, 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 it's, it's, an, it's an amazing opportunity to build content around and build a path of education and empowerment. 
That's amazing. Those are those are big numbers. 70 to 80%, three quarters could potentially be significantly reduced, especially if we're talking about early and we're really just trying to reverse sort of the blood vessel um, you know, issues before maybe the penis has actually really changed in terms of its architecture um, from the long-term damage. That is so empowering. Well, and because yeah. you think about it, you know, we, we don't want to wait until the guy's going in with chest pain. Right. That's the end result of years and years of endothelial dysfunction. So some of the early, earliest markers of endothelial dysfunction will be some of those FMD tests that you can do the, uh, the, uh, the uh, brachial index test is a test to, to, to check the distensibility of, of blood vessels. You can check IL-6 levels in different inflammatory mediators and some of the uh, CIMT testing, you know, early indicators of endothelial dysfunction. If you can step in early on those, you can stop that progression rather than waiting for the, you know, the classic, I'm showing up in the ED with chest pain and my troponins are off the roof. So, um, yeah, you just step in early and, and we know you see those people, the people that were active, that ate not out of boxes and bags, uh, and that you had a real food diet. They were active. They had good social support. These are the people that you walk into your office. You're like, you're 85. You look like you're 55. I just had a 40 year old in here that looks twice as old as you and, and physiologically looks twice as old as you. So the people who do it right and, and have a healthy lifestyle and behavior, you know, the machine pays you back for that. Yes. I'd like to get that. That's where I actually want to drill in next. Cause I think we've talked a lot about physiology here and, mm-hmm. um, and the epidemiology of this stuff, but I'd love to leave people with some practical takeaways. Um, and so, and one, one stat I was just going to mention, I, I was looking at a paper, I think it was out of Harvard that showed that people who were obese had an 80% higher likelihood chance of having semen that had no sperm in it. So essentially zero sperm. I didn't realize that was a thing that you could actually have semen that had no sperm in it. I saw two azospermics today. And this is largely all the things we're talking about, but low testosterone probably. And (laughs) so there are, there are some people who have a genetic issue. The guy I saw today was a triathlete. And so okay. he may actually have some over-exercise oxidative stress related. But uh, And then there's another gentleman that has a Y chromosome microdeletion. So there are true genetic mishaps that lead to that. But the bigger impact is the you know obesity, heat, oxidative stress, and what that's doing on the spermatogenic potential uh, you know, in, in the testis. And so it, it is a big deal. Amazing. Um, I, I just don't think most people are aware of that, that you can be having, you know, semen come out, that, but it's actually just like not, there's no sperm in it. And that's, that's just, that's amazing to me. And that it actually could be in some way related to our diet or our, our weight. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, basically what is the doctor match key, like general dietary and lifestyle plan to help men essentially improve their sexual function and improve their fertility. And maybe we can go through just like, you talked a little bit about diet here with don't eat things out of boxes and bags, mm-hmm. don't eat things with labels, eat real food. And me going into, so we maybe recap diet, but then also talk about kind of generally movement, sleep, stress, and endocrine disruptors. And just right. what would be, what should someone be thinking about if they're hearing this and feeling really inspired of where they should go next? Yeah. And so when I see a gentleman that's clearly got uh, evidence of metabolic dysfunction and obesity, I don't want to overwhelm them with the initial kind of discussion of what to do with nutrition because 
you know, if we go through everything we can talk about, including fasting concepts and, and these types of things, it can overwhelm them. So I, I try to kind of look at, you know, what is their diet? Where are some of your problem spots and start working on those, some of those things first. But I, I absolutely talk to them about, you know, avoiding the, the obvious added sugars, you know, the obvious processed carbohydrates. I'm in a part of the country where I see a lot of guys who are third shift workers. They are, um, they're manufacturing, um, uh, uh, warehouse people. They are truck drivers. They are in a situation where their choices are limited. So it's very hard. So you start to work within that, you know, look for the healthier proteins that you can find, look for the healthier carbohydrates that you can find. And, you know, those issues. And then I don't start talking to them as much about order of food and timing of food initially. Now I try to, to deliver that in a, in a segmental way so as to not overwhelm them. Uh, and so, but then you might have someone walking in who's already pretty tight on all of that. And so then you start, I start digging in on more specifics about when are you eating? Are you eating late at night? You should be eating that really heavier kind of maybe carbohydrate uh, type meal earlier in the day, not later in the day. So I, I, I will tailor my nutritional discussion to them based on their background and their knowledge base as you try to educate them so that I don't lose them. Um, it is a high touch process. If you're going to give this product and do it well, you've got to continue to touch this guy, whether it be through a health coach, myself or otherwise. Um, and so I will obviously try to get them. The biggest thing is reduce the bad carbs and reduce the sugar. That's where I will hit first. And then I will rapidly move to some fasting concepts because they want to see changes in a hurry. Guys want to see something happen. It's the same thing that I will quickly get their testosterone up because that helps them. Not only does it literally help them get rid of fat and maintain muscle and they like that and they feel better, but it's going to further uh, in, engage them in the process because they're going to see changes and it's going to help them. And then it's going to increase the retention and compliance. Um, and so I will, I will do that. And then I'll introduce some fasting concepts, however, they may be able to do that. Amazing. So fasting that like a very powerful tool for seeing rapid results and getting people motivated. Um, how do you talk to men about things like the importance of sleep and stress and what kind of response do you get when you bring in some of those concepts as well? Well, and, and so the interesting thing is I've been seeing so many third, third shift workers lately, and we know mm -hmm. they are an at-risk class. I mean, they are now a studied group because of their disruption of their sleep cycles. And what it does, you know, you listen to people like Matthew Walker, and it blows you away when you start le learning about sleep. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know about that sleep issue with low T. I didn't know how amazingly it will change your own uh, insulin uh, response until I got this thing. And I watched what it did in my sleep pattern, which was amazing. Um, so I explain to them and I show them, I'll pull out my phone and I'll show them my own curves and I'll tell them what has happened to me. And I'll explain to them that sleep is much more than just putting your head down. It is that time for your body to recycle, to maintain, and to you know do what it needs to do to manage energy well and to manage food well. And so sleeping is crucial and you... It is hard. You know, some of these people, some men just aren't ready yet. And that's the other thing is you, you see where they're ready for what. And then I start to grab at those things that they'll listen to. And then if they're not going to, I don't push too hard on sleep if they don't have that option. But it is an incredibly important lever to pull. 
And so you have to understand what their sleep hygiene is like. Uh, are they, you know, are, are they on a, on the device late at night? Are they drinking? You know, are they are they having a lot of alcohol at night? This is Wisconsin, so that's a big issue. Um, you know, those caffeine, the obvious things we talk about. I talk about those lifestyle factors that are going to impede. Uh, you know, the ability to get to sleep and stay asleep. But then I, I just get them to learn that it's a priority. It has to be a priority if they're going to take this seriously, just like the nutrition is a priority. And now the stress aspect of it, uh, as it impacted me massively, uh, I did, I, I do explain to them, I show them my app on my phone for uh, wake up is, is the one that I just got. But I, you know, I also have Oak and, and I have uh, Calm on there. And I said, these are different techniques and different things that you can try. And I said, you know, I'm talking to some of these guys that are warehouse workers and otherwise, but I said, this is important. I said, we are now a 24 seven brain that was never built to be that way. Our brain was supposed to be turned off and we don't do it. And so um, we don't do it because kids and just like you are getting up in the middle of the night to check their phone and it is impacting our brain's ability to kind of put itself away and rest. And we know what it's doing from a chronic stress standpoint to children, because the studies have been done about device use and that chronic interruption of sleep. And I said, so, um, you know, stress and whatever you can do to, to, to improve stress and quiet the brain is so important. Uh, and uh, it's, you get some uptake on it and not others, but that's it. You have to slowly move this thing. And then what's happening to me is as I do have positive impacts on men, I'm getting a huge amount of word of mouth. So it's not physicians that are sending a lot of these men across the transom of my building. It's my other patients. So word of mouth and the consumerism and the end user demand is, is showing itself. Uh, even in a place like Racine in Kenosha, Wisconsin, you've got people who are saying in the gym, you're changing. What's happening? Oh, I'm seeing this guy now. Go over and talk with him. So it happens every day. And so you've got to, but you've got to find a product and a way to connect with the people because uh, each guy is different. What matters to him is what's going to matter to me. And that's how I, that's why I look at him. You know, what do you want to get better at? This guy, it might be a cognitive issue. This guy, it might be his erections. This guy, it might be man. In the past, every time I work out and I clean up my diet, I lose some weight. It's not happening anymore. What's wrong? And then you'll, and then I'll drill down on the biochemistry and find out they've got low T usually and, and address that. Um, but those are, it is, and I've heard this from so many people, you know, the N of one, is very important. When you're taking care of someone, that is there, everyone's unique. So everyone's got to be, it's, there's no cookie cutter approach to doing this to a man or a woman. Yes, there are general concepts that apply, but you have got to find a way to, to engage and educate that man that he, that, that he will listen to. Uh, and so everyone's got to be dealt with individually because we're all different. And women are a whole lot different. <laughs> That I think is so important. It's not cookie cutter. Um, and you, I think something that I found when I switched from ENT to more functional medicine, and I was spending literally two hours with every patient, it was like in an initial visit, mm -hmm. was really figuring out, like you said, like what are the particular barriers in that patient's life to making successful behavior change? And what's the lowest hanging fruit for that patient of where we can get some rapid improvement? Mm -hmm. right. And then like you said, not overwhelming with like 10 different things, every pillar of lifestyle and diet, but figuring out what are the highest leverage areas to start with that are going to both be effective, adopted, you know, and then, mm -hmm. and then let it evolve, build trust through all that. It's really an incredible dance when you have the time 
to, to spend to dig into this stuff. And I found that if, you know, a recommendation when it's up against huge barriers in the patient's life, it's just not going to be effective. And then there's, of course, um, discouragement. And so I think the way you framed it is beautiful. Like there are general concepts that are important, like don't eat packaged foods, don't eat processed mm-hmm. foods, get sleep. Um, but really intersecting that with the patient's realities um, so that you're going to be successful. Well, and, and that's another thing is as I look at them and I say, you can't be perfect. I'm yeah. not perfect. You know, no, none of us are perfect. Allow yourself 20 to 30% of leeway, you know, 70% of the time, try to be tight on your diet, 20 to 30% of the time, let yourself go. That's the durability factor that will keep you on the path. If you don't do that, you will not stay on the path. Um, you know, I got four young kids. They like Culver's, they like pizza. You know, I don't want to be an app. I want to be engaged. I want to be present. So I let myself do that, you know, and, but if 70% of the time you're doing the right stuff and that other part of those compartments of lifestyle and behavior, you can do that. And that allows for a meaningful, healthy life. And so I'm very careful with guys when they come in, like, you know, I I have been doing this. I'm like, that's fine. You know, it's, you recognize it, you know, that just make sure as you, you know, you try to keep it 70, 30, 80, 20, uh, if, if you can, and it's, it's, uh, it is, you'll lose some people in it, but overall you're just trying to make incremental change and improving their health. So final couple questions here. I would love to hear, I know you've recommend levels, to some of your patients, and you've obviously used it yourself. How has that played into some of your successful patient outcomes? And if you have any particular stories of patients who have done well and been successful using CGM as part of their metabolic health journey would love would love to hear any yeah and there's a lot of the 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 couple stories i'm thinking about are all you know things that we've heard before but but mostly the guys are blown away at what bread will do to them okay and or you know other kinds of things that they didn't really realize had a lot of added sugar in it um but the 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 carbohydrate stories you know the mountain dew the uh, energy drink stories and these types of things when they, we all know it because, you know, we're preaching to the choir here, but when you see that response on that curve, you're like, wow, you know, and, and you, you just, it just sets in and holds you accountable for what you just did. Um, and so those are been very important to me. And I saw a gentleman probably about two weeks ago and he said, I haven't felt this good ever. He goes, and, and he does, he has a CGM and he's been using it for about two months. And he said, it's unbelievable what I've done to my numbers. He goes, and in fact, I have to get rid of my insulin now, you know? And so it's, it's just so nice to hear that. And, um, the, the factors of getting him on, and, and I see this all the time, not to go back to tea, but I put these guys on tea and I throw them on daily to Dalafil. And, and so many of these guys, their A1C just lowers out very quickly. And their studies showing daily to Dalafil lowers A1C. And what Cause is Dalafil? Uh, Cialis. Oh, Cialis. Okay. Cialis. And, and so that's working by probably dumping more glucose into the skeletal muscle because it's opening up those blood vessels, just like your ortho guy talked about. Okay. Yeah. So, and that shows you again, the systemic aspect of something that I got interested in because of the penis, but now it's acting everywhere. And, um, and so when you've got a guy like this gentleman who started paying attention and he said it to me and I hadn't even brought it up yet. He goes, and you know what? He goes, I'm sleeping better. And when I sleep better, I've also noticed that this tracing comes down lower. And so that then plays to me. When I put this thing on, uh, I was really amazed at a couple of things. The first thing I noticed was yogurt. 
So I love yogurt in the morning and I'll usually go with like Siggy's or something like that that has lower sugar. But even some of those, some of the flavored ones have added sugar in them. And I almost always now go with a, 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 a full fat, plain yogurt. And one day, and I, I'm very regimented. And one day I got to work and I realized I didn't, I didn't eat my yogurt. So I went out to the little Starbucks thing in the front and I got one of their Dannon ones. And I looked and I got the one that got the least amount of sugar in it. But that spike, that excursion took me to about 180. Now I came right back down. Okay. So I, I'm a weird guy. When I first checked myself before I got healthy, my A1C was 6.3. Now my A1C lives 5.1 to 5.3, but my fasting insulin lives between two and three. So my spikes go up fast and they come right back down. Um, and so that for me, the added sugar in the yogurt differential little test I did kind of really was interesting. And bread for me, I no longer go to Potbelly. Not because it's just Potbelly, but I used to go there for lunch. And it was, I couldn't believe just what bread, even if I got the one where they scoop out the inside of the bread, I, I now avoid bread as much as I can. And sleep was the other factor for me. Sleep uh, when, if I do not, I, I put it at about seven to seven hours and 15 minutes. If I'm below that, I wake up and my numbers stay a little bit higher. If I'm below that, my baseline is lower. So those, those are big. Now stress, we all know what stress does to cortisol and that does to your insulin level. I had, whenever I've had a stressful meeting and I've got this thing on, I see the response. So it really plays right into the physiology that we know out of the textbooks and out of all the pathways that we look at. And then when you see it for real, it really brings it home. And mm. so this technology in the hands of a, of a guy who chooses to try to understand it is life-changing because he can learn all these things that we know about and then to watch him learn it and then take him to those more nuanced things about eat, you know, eat your fiber first, stay away from the carbohydrate first, eat the salad first. That it, So it's not just what you eat. It's not just when you eat it, or how, it's also the order with what you eat it. So that's, you go back to what we were saying before about nutrition. I choose when to start to introduce some of this stuff, but it's fun to play with it, uh, especially if you've got the right guy who's interested in it. And sometimes, you know, we all kind of make assumptions based on people when they walk in. Some guys, sometimes the guys I think are going to want to have nothing to do with it, they love it. Uh, so it's, it's a great tool. And then to build the content around it that kind of funnels into metabolic health, that is really the creation of a path that answers a lot of the, the it really fills in the cracks and the absences in our current healthcare system. But it's not happening in the offices of most healthcare systems. Mm. But hopefully conversations like this right. will be part of changing that because we got to get in the water. We got to get in the ears. Right. And and share your incredible message with people. So I think, um, you know, th I, I think we'll wrap up on that note because that was just very uplifting and, and positive. And I, I really do feel like I could chat with you for hours more. Thank you. Um, is there any, any last, is any stuff we missed that you feel like is really important or any last minute words of wisdom to share with people? You've shared a lot, but just want to yeah. make sure. Uh, I mean, it's it just, you, to engage with patients, it, it's you have to offer them something new. You have to you have to somehow capture their interest, and so you have to get to them at a vulnerable time. And so I, I think the important thing for men is trying to and I this 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 uh, phrase kind of it's overused, but you have to meet them where they're at. 
You have to be ready to get to them when, when they need the help. And then you have to educate them on their problem and how it ties into what's actually happening in their body. Um, and then, you know, it's simple. It, 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 what we're talking about sounds complicated, but it's just simple changes that go back to healthy behaviors. And if we can do it, it's, it, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it is, it is a low hanging fruit. It, 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 it improves people's lifespan. And it, it's something that sadly uh, is not happening within our mainstream medicine today. And, and one thing I do want to mention, and, 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 and we didn't do it either earlier, and I don't know if you want to include this, but it is so important to recognize what our current healthcare system is doing. So if you look at, are you aware of the Commonwealth Fund study? I don't think so. So the Commonwealth Fund is a large corporation that has evaluated healthcare systems on a yearly basis. Um, and they use four primary metrics, infant mortality, maternal mortality, uh, lifespan after 60, and preventable mortality and morbidity. And they look at high-income countries. So there are 11 systems they look at, 11 countries on this planet. We are dead last. We have always been dead last. And not are we just dead last. We are so far low that they had to drop out the data from the United States from a lot of their data analytics because it skewed it. And we spend twice as much as the next country above us. So I, I get frustrated with some of our leaders when they talk about how good of a system we have when they are kind of creating their own metrics to measure themselves again. Again, so if you're going to create your yardstick, it's going to make you look good, right? So these are standard metrics that you just apply. They're population health metrics, and you, I already mentioned them. But we are the last, you know, in things like infant mortality and and uh, maternal mortality. It's it's scary, but all you have to do is go take a look at what's happening to our population in terms of obesity and metabolic health, and. The, and I just wish more people knew about that so that they would start to challenge our healthcare system a little bit more. We need to change and it needs to be more health forward. The last thing I, I will say is I do this with all my guys when they're kind of questioning me. I say, go back, go back to your old family photos. Go look at your black and white family photos and see how much obesity is there in the history in your family. You don't see it in the black and white photos. Now go look at your family outings now. I said, our bodies have been here for 200,000 years plus, and in the last 50 to 100 years, we're feeding and treating them differently, and we haven't been able to adapt, and our bodies are showing us that. We're overfeeding with the wrong kind of energy, and our bodies are rebelling. And so um, I try to present that in a positive way, and sometimes you know, you can go off, you can go into a, a darker areas, but we have so much opportunity ourselves to recapture responsibility for our own health. And that's where it starts. And I love, I love now when patients challenge me, uh, uh, you know, when they bring in a book or they say, what do you think about this? Because I can tell them if it's valid, I can tell them if it's misinformation, I can try to help them, but responsibility has to be shifted back to the individual and you have to do it in such a way, uh, that it's obtainable to them. Uh, and that's what I, that's why I came out of the well side back to the mainstream side, because my goal is to find that path that allows us to push health and wellness first and have a health forward path. And I think we can do it. And it's going to come through, uh, entities like levels and other 
um, you know, there are other uh, systems out there, Verta Health and some of these other places that are showing you can do this. And when you improve the metrics, they're starting to get the payers to pay attention too. And so uh, I, I am hopeful that when you empower people, we're going to be able to turn this ship more towards health.